morning, everyone. It's good to gather as a church family. Love you guys. I missed you so much last week. Michael threw down while I was out. Good job. And I'm excited for us to dive back into the book of Daniel today. We are picking up in Daniel chapter 10, which has all sorts of bizarre stuff. Nothing, nothing unlike the rest of Daniel, right? So as we get in here, you can turn to Daniel 10 if you'd like. I'd like us just to begin by acknowledging that if we were to honestly evaluate our lives, I suspect we would find ourselves realizing there's a lot of good things that we are underutilizing, things that we have bought, like possessions or even our, our own physical bodies that we are underperforming in all sorts of ways. For instance, maybe you have a brand new MacBook, but you only use it to check email or something, right? This thing that has like more technology in it than they had when they sent people to the moon 50, 60, 70 years ago, whenever that was, and you're just using it for something really simple. Maybe you have an SUV, and the commercials for this car like have it winding all over the place, going through puddles and everything, but you're like, I'm just gonna drive it to Food Line and back. You know, maybe that you have like old school, uh, well, it could, be, it, could be, it could be anything. I'm thinking of like a, ca- a camera that Lynn and I used to have. We used to each have our own DSLR cameras, and we, you know, before that was like better technology in our phones to take better pictures, and we would use it for all sorts of things, but we're not professionals, so we're using it for like taking pictures of our food and you know other places and things that we went to, visited and all that stuff, but it definitely did not maximize like all the different details and, um, and um, the settings that you can have. I'm like, I don't know what these are, I'll just use auto for everything, right? And didn't, couldn't really maximize what that camera was for. Uh, there's study Bibles that we all have that we might not be reading. There's collecting dust, but inside those are unpacking the wonderful truths of scripture. And I think about our own physical health. Several of us are able-bodied in the sense that you could be faster and stronger than you are, but instead it's like, yeah, I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna eat potato chips, play on my phone. It's like, okay, yeah. And so like whatever it is, we all have possessions in our life that go underutilized. And I suspect, I wanna challenge you with this, that the greatest area in your spiritual life that goes underutilized is prayer the weapon of prayer, to use this as a means to fight spiritual battles and to connect with God and to grow in your faith. There are all sorts of ways that we can try to uh, find solutions in our life. And if we're honest, we tend to get to prayer a little later in the whole breakdown, uh, the flow chart, right? First, you might talk to a friend about a problem. First, you might Google it first or second, third, fourth, somewhere in there, eventually you're like, you know what? I haven't hit any answers. Let me just pray about it. So my challenge for us is to recognize that as believers, we have unhindered access to God Almighty. We can talk to him about anything. We can plead with him for breakthrough, to move, to open doors. And yet if we audit our lives, for instance, even our own time, we might find that if we're honest, We give time, energy, all sorts of things to everything else other than prayer. Today with Daniel 10, we relook at Daniel's prayer life. The things that we missed in Daniel 7 or 8 or 9, getting all mixed up here. When we discussed prayer then three weeks ago, if you weren't paying attention or didn't apply things or you weren't here, Today, we relook at very similar things in a different story with a unique vision. 
So if you have your Bibles, as I mentioned, you can open to Daniel 10. This chapter is one of the most unique in scripture because it gives us a glimpse into the weapon of prayer in spiritual warfare. And it also reveals, get this, parts or the functions and the hierarchy of God's angelic warriors. In this chapter is potentially an appearance of Christ before he's born. In this chapter, we get the idea of spirit princes over nations that are both assigned by God to his angels as well as Satan to his demons. And we also see a prophetic vision of a great conflict against God's people that occurred to the Jews. And it extends to the future little horn that we've talked about, aka the beast, aka the Antichrist, and that earthly kingdom at the end. And it is all conquered by the victorious Jesus Christ at his return. So this is quite the chapter. It sets that up, actually. That, that last portion I mentioned is primarily explained in chapter 11. But nonetheless, this is all that's happening here. This is the fourth and final vision of, of, uh, that Daniel received. In its entirety would be chapters 10 and 11. And I'll throw 12 in there, too. And so all three of these final chapters are the same story. We only have time for 10, uh, for chapter 10. And uh, mostly this sets, up the, this sets up the context and the stage for the vision that he does receive uh, that we'll talk through in the, in the future weeks here. So Daniel 10, starting in verse 1, let's just start working through this and see where we're at. Again, this has a lot of fun stuff that gives support, random sentences or phrases that support like a whole field of theology that we're not going to get into all those different dynamics because I really want to filter this through the, through the lens of prayer and the exhortation from God to strengthen and deepen our prayer life. But we do see these things in here and we are going to talk about it to some degree, but not nearly to the length that some of you may want to or that I personally enjoy looking at. So Daniel 10, verse one, it says this, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Verse two says, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all. For the full three weeks. Right, let me pause there real quick. Again, we see that Daniel, similar to these other descriptions and other chapters, Daniel is praying for wisdom, for insight. He is withholding from certain foods. He, there's this physical uh, posture similar to the other chapters. In this case, he specifically names the things, what is it, the, the different, uh, the, the delicacies, the meat, the wine, right? This is like Texas de Brazil in Persia. And he is withholding from these things for three weeks to seek the Lord. He also withholds from anointing himself with all the oils that would be good to you know, like make him smell good, um, help his skin be refreshed in the desert. And he's, he, he's, again, there's this physical posturing. If you recall, a few weeks ago, we talked through it. And in that case, he literally faced toward Jerusalem. He was, praying, he was wearing, uh, I believe he was wearing sack, sackcloth and he had uh, ashes. And so like, all these are in physical posturing. What I, what I, the reason I bring this out is for most of us, when we pray, we're just like, Lord, this is what's going on. Or uh, we're sitting with like a plate of food in front of us and our prayer is something that sounds very repetitive from every day of our lives. 
of thanking him for the food, which is good to thank him for food. But I'm reminded in this of the intensity that Daniel took his prayer life. And this is a Daniel, this story, this moment happens likely because it's at the very end of his life. It likely happens after he was in the lion's den. And if I was him, like in my immaturity and youthfulness, I'd be thinking, listen, God, you're clearly with me. You preserve me in the lion's den. We're tight. So I'm just gonna eat all the meat and like talk with you. I don't need to fast necessarily because I already know like you're with me, you're protecting me. Daniel, this old battle ax, this guy who fought with the Lord, like, like sought him his whole life, lived with him, was used by him, is still choosing to have maximum spiritual disciplines in his prayer life. I love it. Like I'm personally in, it challenged as if this is a, a biography on, on Daniel. With that said, now he gets into this, uh, the, the, the outcome of all his prayers. And similar to the others, there's context setting it up. So at first he has this vision of this human-like figure, and then uh, there's more after that. So let's just talk to this first part. Verse four says, and on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, so it was like probably 20 miles outside of Babylon or farther, uh, but you know, he's along this m massive famous river. I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine glow, gold from Euphaz around his waist, his body like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. Reminds me a little bit of when uh, Paul, the apostle Paul, when he was still Saul, he was on his way to Damascus, and Jesus shows up, and like only Saul is interacting with Jesus in that moment and everyone else like was trembling and hid themselves or fell or something. I don't totally recall. Just, it just reminds me of that. And it continues in verse eight. So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. I didn't catch this in the first service, but he says he has this radiance appearance this is after fasting for three weeks. I'm like, I would look like death. And you're like, ah, but here he is. He's doing great. Verse nine, then I heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. I don't know if that means passed out, but it's along those lines, right? So here he is. He has this vision of this figure that is over the, uh, the river here and we're not told who this heavenly person is. Some have said it's an angel. Some have said it's probably the angel Gabriel of all the different angels. And then others have said this is a Christophany. This is an appearance of Jesus. And I'm prone to lean towards this last one. If you take that, whoever this figure is here is not the same one that in a moment we read touches them and wakes them up. And I say that because this description is so interesting. The language is so parallel to Ezekiel and Revelation. For instance, Revelation 1 says this. We don't have these words on the screen, but just listen to this. The, 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 the language is so similar. It says, I turned around. This was John's, John's um, the Apostle John, when he has this 
vision of Jesus, like right in the moment, beginning with Revelation. Verse 12, it says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire, and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his, eye, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Regardless of, like we know Revelation 1 is the Son of Man, this is Jesus in that account. In this one there's a lot of parallel language, and I find that to be sort of a fascinating detail, but we're gonna just keep moving through the story here. Verse 10, another or the same, just depends how you read this. I would read this as another uh, heavenly figure appears. Possibly this is Gabriel, but we're not told. Verse 10 says, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and my knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. Listen to these, this is fascinating. If you have a Bible, definitely underline this. If you have a Bible and a pen, like, because it's just such a wonderful description. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. Does God answer prayer or listen to prayer? Uh, the answer is yeah. He's like literally this is occurring. This response from this angelic figure is occurring because of Daniel's prayer. So the, the, the angel continues. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. So there's the, yeah, several different characters there. And came to make you understand, so I came to make you what, uh, to understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for the days yet to come. Okay, let's just pause there for a moment because there's a whole bunch of different characters that if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, like I don't even know who these people are. And in fact, there's certain phrases that are only used here and often these phrases are then like extrapolated out into different theology like conversations about how angels work, demons, spiritual warfare, and all that kind of stuff. What I like to do is talk through some of these because on one hand, it is, uh, if you're a learner uh, like me, I love learning. This is just uh, amazing details to talk through. But then also this has value within our faith as we think about the the glimpse behind what happens when we pray and how does God work and what is the interaction there. So we get a little bit of this. So let's talk to this. First of all, Daniel, he starts praying on this matter and what happens? Well, an angel is sent with the message. He's gonna get it. But then the angel gets delayed by this character, the prince of Persia. And then another character, an archangel named Michael, shows up to help the messenger angel overcome the prince of Persia who is stopping him. And after they get victory over the enemy, the angel continues on his way to Daniel. All right, so let's talk through a few of these different people. First of all, Michael. 
What is his role? Well, we read of Michael, and his name is used in a few different places in Scripture. And in Jude 9 specifically, he's called an archangel, which means first chief angel. So it seems, based on this passage and a few others, for instance, even Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, his role, he is assigned by God to serve as the chief angelic warrior to protect Israel against Satan's spiritual forces who want to decimate God's chosen people. Well, we see this in Daniel 1, uh, 12, 1. It says this, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never, such as never has been. Again, probably a reference to the tribulation because it's, it's that time frame where there is great distress and trouble that has never happened like it in all of history. So he says uh, in Daniel 12, 1, just continuing that phrase. We don't have it on the screens, but... If you have a Bible, you could flip to it. And it just says, uh, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. So we see this role of Michael uh, at, at this moment here in Daniel, his role in the future one day at the end of all times after there is a great distress that the world has never seen before. And his function is this protection. This reminds us that regardless of Israel's political and economic and military strengths or weaknesses, its existence continues because it is guarded by an angelic prince in the heavenly realm who can thwart the spiritual enemy Satan and any earthly enemy that Satan stirs to attack Israel. That's quite the mouthful, huh? There's a lot there. What I love in this whole portion is sort of this smaller detail that reminds me of God's faithfulness. And it's that even while the Jews were in exile and then captivity, there were angelic forces fighting to preserve Israel. The Israelite people were not abandoned, even in their own discipline, even while they are away. All right, so that's Michael. Then we also see this reference to the prince of Persia, and then another phrase there with the kings of Persia, plural specifically. Who's this prince of Persia who resisted the messenger angel for three weeks? Well, you might read all sorts of different opinions on this, and consistently, it seems pretty strong that this is this is a <clears throat> either uh, this is either a fallen angel assigned to this role by Satan himself, or this is Satan functioning the great adversary in this role. No human would have withstood this messenger angel, and since Michael is a spiritual prince, it's likely that the fallen angel is a spiritual prince in all this. One theologian noted this, phrase, uh, this whole thing. He said this, Persia ruled the world in that day and Satan would surely have concentrated his personal efforts in this most influential area. If the demon was Satan, it would explain why Michael, one of, the, one of God's most powerful angels, was needed to fight against him. So in the context of angelic spiritual warfare, we would see that the prince of Persia would be say Satan, or a really powerful demon. And then the kings of Persia would be like, I don't know, lieutenants in the demonic whole ranking system. Well, what about angels here? There's these references to angels, there's messenger angels, all this kind of stuff. I have six quick facts about angels, and I wanna bring this up because this is kind of a, this is a popular question. This is in, it's in, um, especially this time of year with Halloween coming up, there's all sorts of stuff regarding like 
uh, kind of like the negative or dark forces of the world and stuff, depending on what you're watching. And there's a lot of confusion. Like, how does this work with angels and demons and all that? Well, so six quick facts for you. First of all, angels are real, right? Number two, humans do not turn into angels when we die. But angels are a separate created being. They live for eternity. Number three, there are good and there are evil angels, a.k.a. demons. Number four, angels have been given by God this ability to influence human affairs for the good or the bad. For the good, we see this here in Daniel chapter 10. Uh, for the bad, we see this with all sorts of different ways in which uh, the, the, the demonic influence for humans to act with evil. So this is expressed, as we've talked about in weeks past, this guy named Antiochus, who lived 171 BC or so, is when he attacked Jerusalem, and he was functioning as kind of like, a, in that time, an expression of the, in a foreshadowing of the future Antichrist. And then when we read about the Antichrist in Revelation, it's clear that Satan stirs within the spirit of this person. As Satan has the authority and bestows that on this person to act and to function in a certain way. And so there's this sort of, um, there's just this influence and this dynamic there. One writer explained the interaction this way. In Daniel's day, Persia ruled the earth. Satan would naturally have attempted to influence the decisions made by the Persian government because policies made there would affect the world. Today, Satan continues his attempts to sway earthly powers, and he focuses his attention on nations of the world with the most influence. That was this writer's take. I'd say he just, he focuses his attention on everybody who's going to give his attention to him, but nonetheless, there we have it. The fifth fact for you about angels is there is an invisible spiritual war being waged, and it involves angels and believers. We know this because Paul writes about this in the book of Ephesians and other places, but in Ephesians chapter six, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? Like at its core, our struggle isn't you and me and other people. Our struggle, he says, is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's a reminder that there is a war going on that we do not see even if you get really good glasses, like you just can't see it and it's happening behind the scenes. Number six, last fact here, is that God's angels act on behalf of the, his saints. We, as believers today. In this story, they are instrumental in delivering this message to Daniel. And then different passages, we see this in the book of Acts. Um, let's see, an angel arrives to Peter, helps him get out of prison at one point. Um, I love the phrasing, but this might be Jesus himself. Let me look it up real quick. In 2 Timothy 4, at the very end, Paul says this. He's talking about how he's been abandoned by everybody. And then he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. I thought there was a reference to an, an angel, but it's not in this one. Nonetheless, you have the role of angels are uh, they serve and they function and they come alongside and they strengthen believers even today. Full disclosure, I can't tell you that I like have this experience where I interacted with one like that. To my knowledge, has not happened. I would tell you, maybe. <laughs> I think I would unless you thought I was like crazy or something. But 
I can't tell you that, but we do this in, we see this in scripture and we hear the different stories and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so there we have, we have uh, Michael, we have the Prince of Persia, we have just angels in general. And last detail I want to talk through on this because it, it's a little bit of a deeper, deeper step than just the characters involved. And it's God's sovereignty over evil. This passage does not signify that God is weak or that demonic forces can thwart God's will. This book, the whole book of Daniel, it drips with how Yahweh is the one who establishes rulers and removes rulers. He is the one that reveals dreams and visions. He is the one that's in charge all across the board. Nothing can stop that. Nothing can thwart that or change that. But in his sovereign will and his planning, he does allow for there to be mm, things not the way we would do it. Daniel was praying and he prayed for three weeks. That's a lot longer than Daniel was hoping to pray. But God allowed that delay. One theologian, his last name's Archer. I like Archer stuff a lot. He says, while God can, of course, override the united resistance of all the forces of hell if he chooses to do so, he accords to demons certain limited powers of obstruction and rebellion, somewhat like those he allows humans. In both cases, the exercise of free will in the opposition to the Lord of heaven is permitted by him when he sees fit. But as Job mentions, the malignity of Satan is never allowed to go beyond the due limit set by God. And so we see this interaction between God and humans and then angels and fallen angels. And in all of it, I'm reminded of 1 John 4, 4. 1 John 4, 4 says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. All right, so you don't need to be scared or nervous about like, guess you're going to battle like you thought the battle was your boss at work. No, nope, I'm talking about it's, we got, we got demons that you're like fighting, but you know what? Greater is he who is in you than he who's in the world. And who is in you? Well, we reminded that our God, our savior, Jesus, he resurrected, he reigns, he rules. And he is the one as we see in Revelation, he's only, the only one worthy to open that scroll. And therefore we worship him. Well, the story continues. Let's just finish out the story a little bit. There's a little bit to wrap up here and then I'll explain how it connects with prayer again. Verse 15 says, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and I was mute. I mean, Daniel goes through the ringer with all these different visions and stuff. This chapter, he's just all sorts of stuff. Verse 16, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and I spoke. I said to him who stood before me, oh my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, oh man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. It's a great verse, by the way. Underline that, highlight that, memorize that. You can always use that. Craig, thanks for sending that to me like a month ago. It's a great verse. Verse 20 says, or it continues. Uh, yeah, verse 19 continues. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened. And I said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And verse one of chapter 11 says, and as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. 
And then we see just the rest of chapter 11, which we'll discuss next time, and, and 12. It starts to get into a lengthy prophetic explanation of how these events, like the, the next um, series of rulers and their functions. And there's a lot of good takeaways with all that. Within this section, we can see how the prince of Persian, uh, Persia is an angelic enemy to God. And the prince of Greece is too. The evil spirit would be influencing behind the scenes uh, with uh, all sorts of ways. But one of the ways it was most made manifest, as I mentioned ago, is with Antiochus IV, who went into the temple and, and you know, killed the pig there in the middle of the temple and set up that, uh, that statue, I believe, to, I believe to Zeus. But I can't recall if that was him or the one that came in AD 70. Eventually, if you recall, the Romans, they conquered Greece and they would rule and their empire was the one that Jesus was born into. And it's reasonable that Satan and his forces were determined to try and thwart Israel's return from captivity and to stop them from rebuilding the city, the temple, the walls and all that because the eventual birth of the Savior was imminent. So what difference does this make for us today? Well, Daniel's prayer life is a fantastic model in both its, in his sacrifice and in his devotion in prayer. This whole vision and response from some of God's mightiest angels, it's all happening because Daniel was begging the Lord and interceding and asking for clarity on this matter for his people. I'm reminded of Romans 5, 1 and 2, which talks about the role that Jesus has in the, what this plays. It says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, again, not our good works, not being a nice person, but we are justified before God through our faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We have access to our God. And this involves all sorts of things but it definitely involves prayer. Access to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. We can ask anything of our Father. He listens. He understands. Oftentimes, we may pray things and he will answer them differently than we prayed. You know, we are human. We're not always perfect in how we're praying. But he commands us to pray. He calls us to pray. And he moves and he works in response to prayer. Just as even in this story where it says like, because you prayed, like that's why, I'm, that's why I'm coming back, that's why I'm coming to you. And so let me challenge us to be serious in our prayer, not to be flippant when we do it, but to strengthen in our prayer, both in, in quantity, like the amount we pray, and also in quality, that we wouldn't pray just like simple phrases, although simple is fine. My kids pray simple prayers all the time. It's simple is fine. But to the degree that you can deepen and strengthen and work, quote unquote, prayer muscles, let us be faithful to do so. A few weeks ago, I mentioned prayer. We talked about it. And I love that we get to circle back on this with Daniel because the question I'm thinking is like, has your prayer life substantially changed in the last three weeks since we talked about it last? Uh, I, for me, I've thought about a couple things. I mean, I preached it too, but I don't always remember everything like preaching on weeks later, and I've been able to incorporate some of those dynamics, such as trying to begin with 
acknowledging who God is and thanking him at the very beginning. But there have been several things that have been, um, I don't know, troubling my heart for, for some stuff in some ways with, with situations in your lives and things in my own life. And I haven't fasted on any of them in the last three weeks. I've prayed a lot, but I haven't fasted. And I read this and thought, well, here I am, like circling back on prayer, and I haven't taken this to a degree that it probably needs to be, particularly on certain things. And I wonder if you're similar. Uh, in fact, as I think about time, I have spent way more time on entertainment than I have in prayer. Like I found a show I liked, I watched the whole thing and uh, all the whole season. And it's like, but have I prayed for eight hours? In th- well, maybe, but like, like, like in the last three weeks, yeah. But not, not in the devoted and dedicated sort of way that I would think and the attention that I gave to like a TV show. And so this, when it comes to say fasting and being serious in our prayer, let's look at the giants of our faith, Moses, David, Esther, Daniel, Paul, Jesus, they all understood the need to get alone with God, to fast, to pray, to be disciplined in this way. And likewise, we should too. So, uh, how about um, Trent and you and the team? How about you guys come back on up here? As they're getting settled, let me just ask you some questions. What is stopping you or holding you back from making prayer more central in your life? If you'd say, well, I just don't know how to pray, I'd say, well, hey, that's great. I would love to teach you. One way is at the uh, Welcome Center, we have a, a handout, and it's a guide on how you can pray. It's associated with a prayer journal, and if you need one, grab the journal. If you're an average journal, you can keep the one you have, but just grab another handout, and it works through the four of words of you begin with adoration and then you begin with confession and then thanksgiving and then supplication. That's, that's a great guide. I mean, that, that'll really deepen your prayer life. Or if you're saying, I'd like to learn this from others, you know, in the same way you wanna see how others might do some random task or hobby. Well, how about with, with prayer? Well, you can join one of our groups that focus on prayer and work through prayer. So, so you have resources at your disposal. My suspicion is it's not a lack of uh, those things, we just haven't done it. And so if you're in that place where you're ready to deepen your prayer life, I wanna encourage you to restart that or kickstart that and strengthen that, uh, in part because we need you praying. Like we need, we, we are weaker when we are not strong in that area as a church family. Uh, we're a church of hundreds of people. Imagine hundreds of people praying. That'd be amazing. Instead, there's like 20 so to have like a church full of prayer warriors, let's do it. That's my encouragement for you. And my prayer for you is that you will have a holy conviction and you have no clue where this has come from, but it's come from the Lord, where he would burn in your heart that you have to deepen in this area. And that you will also see him encouraging you that he is answering and it will like keep the momentum going. And along these lines are those, and I've been in, this, in these moments too, those of us who uh, used to pray, but then through a series of disappointments and hardships and grief, we find ourselves struggling in that area. Like why pray if these great burdens still happened to me? And my heart and my prayer for you, I'm literally praying for your prayer life, right? Is that you will be uh, rejuvenated and that the joy and the fervor you once had 
maybe when you were a teenager or a young adult or six months ago, who knows, that it would be re, uh, reignited by the Holy Spirit himself, not from any other thing. So with that said, let us, let, let me, let me uh, conclude this time by, by taking this to the Lord in prayer.